The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, when we started this program around five years ago, we initiated a series of rather dramatic programs that looked at the connection between archaeology and religion and uh, tried to establish a variety of connections, whether or not you're a religious person or not. Uh, there are some very, very striking uh, pieces of evidence that link the two. Obviously, uh, a believer is a believer, and a person who is a person of faith uh, has come to a certain measure of understanding concerning his relationship to a deity, spirituality, and in many cases, spirituality and the belief in a higher being or a higher presence is is something that is certainly very personal, and it's also something that brings people together and, of course, also causes a certain measure of controversy. And what I'd like to discuss today is looking at the nexus of science and religion in the form of archaeology and what archaeology has to say about this unique and in many ways remarkable connection between traditional religion, which is where I'm going to dwell primarily, and science itself. And I'm going to do this largely based on some of my own personal experiences, experiences that brought me to, in a sense, the center of this type of connection. And um, I know people feel very passionate and very strongly about this connection because uh, obviously religion has factored so strongly into our being as uh, cultures and civilizations and uh, our connection 
with a higher being. And so what I'd like to do is to look at it largely from the uh, perspective of the traditional religions, and I'm talking about Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And I want to give you a couple of examples of where the connection between these uh, religions and a scientific baseline are incredibly provocative and certainly give people on the various ends of the spectrum, those who are strong believers to those who are in the agnostic to atheistic category, some pause to understand where the other side is coming from and to look at these connections from an objective perspective or certainly a perspective that can be as objective as possible when you're looking at a situation and you're looking at contexts that most people believe very strongly. And I think that coming to a middle ground and understanding where some of... Uh, the beliefs, some of folks as traditionalist and even more progressive beliefs intersect with science in archaeology are very, very thought-provoking. And if nothing else, we want to sort of open up our connections and take a look at the perspectives brought into this debate by both sides. And I'll do this by citing, as I said before, a couple of examples that I had the incredible opportunity to explore at various stages in my career. I've done a lot of work in the Middle East, and the Middle East, as, as most of you know, is sort of the center and the the cradle of, of what we call the cradle of civilization, certainly, where uh, the baselines of Western civilization are rooted. And it goes, obviously, all the way back to the creation myths and the creation versions, if you want to call it that. And I, I don't want to inflict, certainly, any kind of a bias on this, but let's call it the uh, traditional uh, pathways of looking at the origins of civilization. And uh, I think we can pretty much agree that whether or not you're a Jew, a, a Muslim, or a Christian, the Holy Land, as traditionally defined, is certainly at the center of many of the um, traditions and the origins of those traditions in the old world. I'm talking not just about the area that's currently called Israel or Palestine, but also obviously uh, Mesopotamia and Egypt, if we want to sort of look at these origins in, uh, in the broadest sense. And if we look at the creation myths, and if we look, or again, let me, let me rephrase that. I, I, I tend to uh, unfortunately put, put myths and creation together, and, and I apologize for that up front. But let's just talk about the various versions of creation, if you will, assuming that the world was created approximately 6,000 years ago, which is certainly one of the, the traditional beliefs in, in Judeo-Christian tradition and and also has transported that way into, into Muslim beliefs as well. We looked at that period at about 5,800 years ago, which would in more traditional and classic archaeological senses be equivalent to the Bronze Age. And many have established a connection between the emergence of uh, 
a metalworking technology and the fluorescence or the growth of complex societies. And um, there are, uh, certainly are some very strong indicators that suggest that this is a very strongly demonstrable connection and one that is grounded in, in, in a strong archaeological tradition. That said, it's also considered the period of creation. So whether or not you want to establish that connection, a technological connection to um, the uh, creation of the world, that's certainly up to your own spiritual beliefs. But certainly this was a period, I think, where we can agree that major developments occurred in the middle in the ancient middle east and if we look at that and we look at various myths and, and uh, again various traditions and and please excuse me for for cross correlating these i don't mean any disrespect to anyone on that but if you look at that then you'll see a variety of very interesting situations and and let me bring one up that really opened up my eyes to this issue when i was a graduate student many years ago I was asked to look at um, the connection between uh, extensive flood deposits in the Tigris and Euphrates area in, in Iraq, which, as I said before, was certainly one of the major centers of early complex societies and civilization, and to look at uh, the record of flood events based on the science behind it all. And what I mean by that is, is as a geoarchaeologist or a person who looks at the uh, intersection of geology and archaeology, one of the phenomena that was noted by some uh, relatively well-known archaeologists of the time and, and continues to be demonstrated today is that there is a unique series of uh, flooding deposits along the Tigris and Euphrates that stand out. In other words, they provide all the indications of a cataclysmic series of flooding events that are not confined to a specific area, but rather all, run all the way up and down the drainage, down the stream, and they're visible in a vertical section or in a profile that lies between two archaeological deposits and separates them. And the archaeological deposits would be considered here the um, uh, depositions of flood flooding uh, in between um, the evidence of human occupation, human occupation in this sense uh, referring to a dense artifactual material that is contained in, uh, a, uh, in, in a soil matrix or a soil uh, deposit that includes uh, the types of discolorations and the kinds of uh, deposits and sediments that show unquestionable evidence of human modification. That would be, say, for example, um, a very dense concentration of pottery or a uh, series of activity areas, say st a stone chipping debris, um, and areas of food processing, which are unmistakable in terms of the types of artifacts which are clearly of human origin. Well, what I'm saying here is that there is a very thick 
virgin deposit, if you want to call it, that can be demonstrably linked to uh, flooding ap- activity. And it, if it doesn't, if it's not completely devoid of archaeological materials, it is certainly dominated by flood sands or flood silts, which we know from the types of work that we do are a product of very distinctive types of stream flow and very distinctive types of accumulation patterns that can only be generated by a flowing river. And if you go up and down some of the major city-states, that we see in Mesopotamia, you will see that there are deposits that are very, very thick that can be correlated by radiocarbon dating and by dint of the fact that they're separated by specific cultural deposits of a certain time frame that would essentially be linked to uh, a flooding event that is so extensive that it would have affected the entire region and not just one site in particular. So it's a regional phenomena linked to flooding episodes and probably climatic changes that uh, resulted in unique accumulations of a, fl- of a flooding event. And it, in the, the case of these particular areas, these were apparently the uh, deposits that led to the reconstruction of work, what, what a lot of specialists in religious and classical archaeologists called the flooding event that would be tied to Noah and Noah's Ark. So whether or not we believe in the Noah's Ark story, what we do see is very clearly a flooding event that had ramifications extensively across the Middle East at a certain point in time when people existed and where where they were in sort of a very early form of civilizations that is echoed not only in a couple of the major city-states of Mesopotamia, but also maybe find, may find correlations in the Nile Valley and in other major drainages of the ancient Middle East. So uh, you can look at these and impart your own perspective. If you want to go to the scriptures, you'll say, well, that's Noah's Ark. If not that, you will look at it and say, well, this is a very, if you, you're more leaning more towards the agnostic position, you'll say, well, you know what? Here, there was a major flooding event that clearly was related to climatic conditions, to changes in, say, the types of agriculture that might have been practiced at that time, and would have affected not only the landscape, but the human utilization of that landscape. And these are the types of issues and the types of archaeological observations that scientific archaeology can look to and say, you know what, there are elements both of scripture and of the more atheistic and agnostic perspective that correspond to this. And they correspond to these types, these um, accounts, uh, call them deified accounts or call them objective observations by perhaps some great scholars or observers of the human condition at the time that certainly tend to say there was something very special going on here in the landscape, probably related to extensive rainfall, and we know what that means in terms of the Noah's Ark story, and clearly to climate and more generally to how people utilize the landscape, uh, where they built their settlements, how they employed our agricultural practices, and how they made their adjustments 
to a very dense type of uh, landscape and human changes that are clearly uh, mutually reinforcing and give us a perspective on how major events fashioned changes in the human condition, bringing it, let's just say, from uh, hunting and gathering or early domestication behaviors into, for example, complex societies with extensive social networks and trade networks and give us some indications of what had happened in the biblical periods. So these are the types of stories and the types of uh, observations that, in a sense, give credence to both schools of thought, and they certainly provide a perspective from which to look at biblical accounts and, and accounts from the scriptures and allow you to look at them in a very objective way, or certainly in a more objective way, when looking at why uh, biblical accounts have a justification in reality and how that reality can be looked at from uh, the, the more general development of culture and civilization from a more secular perspective. So I think it's very important for all of us to respect the other side of this story and to understand that both perspectives are grounded in a certain type of reality and it's simply the uh, belief that one has, whether it be scientific or more spiritual, that accounts for the variation in the way we interpret these types of phenomena. And I will come back and discuss a couple of other very keen examples, certainly in my experience, that uh, will provide further light on these types of situations and hopefully will allow two ostensibly opposite camps to, meet, to develop a meeting ground where they can look at each other's interpretations from the archaeological perspective and say, you know what, you have a point, I have a point, let us see how we can explore this situation in a mutually beneficial way. And I will be back in a couple of minutes with a couple of more examples that I think will provoke a certain amount of thought amongst the listenership. We'll be right back after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Joe Shulden Ryan. We're back with uh, a, a special edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. What I'm trying to look at today, and I'm doing this program by myself um, and, and utilizing some of my own experiences in the field, is the nexus between um, science and religion and the... Uh, the nexus is really archaeology itself looking at various um, events that have biblical connotations and biblical implications from both a scientific perspective and for a more religious perspective. We had talked earlier about some interesting correlations that essentially looked at the Noah's Ark and the Noah's and the flood uh, accounting as something that was visible clearly in the archaeological record as a series of very thick um, flood deposits sandwiched between two deposits of cultural materials that extended all the way up and down the Tigris-Euphrates River at some of the major city-states like Nippur, Ur, and Uruk, that those deposits had uh, a very clear regional connotation that indicated that there was serious flooding at a certain time in the past and those were essentially dated to around 5,000 to 6,000 years ago which uh, would coincide with the timelines in many biblical and Akkadian accounts, early Mesopotamian accounts, and fit in quite nicely with um, with the biblical accounts and sort of gave uh, essentially justification to both a more religious and a more agnostic or even atheistic account of what really happened in that part of the world. Another episode that I, I'd like to talk about, and it's a personal one, is um, a unique situation that I was involved with uh, at the end of my graduate career, and it dealt with uh, a project that was concerned with looking for the Ark of the Covenant, sort of an Indiana Jones kind of an episode, and as a matter of fact, that particular episode that I was involved with gave rise to sort of the catchy title of our program, Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, In brief, 
I was very short, uh, just a few, uh, a, a, a final stage short of completing my PhD dissertation, and my PhD advisor suggested that it was imperative that I do some more excavations, and this was in the Jordan Valley, um, which is a traditionally a very historic and archaeological um, area that's referred to on many, many occasions in the Old Testament. And uh, my advisor, who uh, I'm sad to say recently passed away, uh, Carl Butzer, he was the, at that time the acknowledged expert on looking at the interface between geological sediments and archaeological deposits and tried to make sense of any connections between ancient landscapes and uh, human settlement, human geography. And he was... Uh, contacted by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, and this was in the 1970s, to essentially get involved in a mission that uh, was privately financed uh, through a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, in which the person who was financing the operation believed that he had found the location of the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, this is one of those sensationalistic-sounding ventures that, in most situations, uh, scientific archaeology would sort of scoff at and say, look, we don't get involved in this kind of adventurism, and uh, let's just leave it at that, and we won't get involved in this. And keep in mind, this is about six years before the uh, uh, first Indiana Jones um, film came out, which was in 1984. This, this occurred in 1978. In any case, the Seventh-day Adventists, which had at the time, and I think they still do have a set, set of very, very professional archaeologists. They're involved in biblical archaeology. And they, uh, individual who uh, was a member of that, their church, provided a very interesting scenario on why the uh, university, which was Andrews University in uh, in Michigan, should actually pursue this project. And, and what he came up with was very intriguing. He had basically hired a group of uh, geotechnical engineers, and he was able to demonstrate that, uh, to make a very long story short, that there were a couple of caves that were buried in the area of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And as many of you may know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948 by an Arab shepherd boy who uh, came upon a cavity in one of the caves and uncovered ancient scriptures that were some of the earliest versions and scrolls of the Old Testament as it's defined today. And in extensive exploration in the late 1940s and well into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uncovered a series of caves, all of which had buried uh, scrolls that survived very well in the dry environments of the Dead Sea area in the Jordan Valley and were preserved beautifully. And it seemed as if almost any part of that particular area surrounding the Dead Sea in the lower Jordan Valley area would produce uh, something new and majestic. And it was linked to the um, dispersal 
of Jew Jewish sects and other sects um, after approximately the time of the first of the Second Temple, and so he developed a case. Uh, the um, the uh, private financier of the Seventh Day Adventist. Uh, group, um, where he was able to essentially demonstrate that there were two of these caves that uh, had never been opened, or had not been opened in recent times, and he convinced the church, the uh, rather the uh, Seventh-day Adventist University, that whether or not they believed his story, and his story was that these um, caves housed uh, some of the most sought-after holy items in the world. He claimed that the Ark of the Covenant might have been buried there, that Aaron's staff might have been buried there, that some of the original manna from the heavens was buried there, and basically put together a story that he believed in. And uh, as a result of that, he basically came to the university and said, you can believe me or not, but if I have found... And if I have experts who can scientifically demonstrate that there are two sealed caves in the vicinity of the uh, series of caves that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is worth excavating and this is worth exploring. And with that argument, uh, which was relatively sound based on some geotechnical information, and I'll get into that in a minute, uh, he tried to essentially uh, get a license through the university to proceed with archaeological exploration. And the argument that was made here was that he could demonstrate that these caves were sealed by running a series of sonar tests through uh, the limestone, which was the bedrock that was dominant in the area. And he could demonstrate that there were cavities within that bedrock that conformed to a cave mouth opening. And um, he did this by running a series of sonar tests where you ran a, a sound wave uh, through the top of, of the bedrock face of the cave, and you demonstrated uh, continuous discontinuities, if you want to call it that, um, in the sonar signal that you essentially um, pounded into the bedrock and it exhibit, exhibited a, uh, an anomaly in its reading and putting those anomalies together they meant uh, they essentially added up to a semi-continuous break in the bedrock that would account for um, this breakage and uh, it made a fair amount of sense and we went ahead and we explored it and we pounded through the bed through uh, a sealed uh, deposit that sealed in the cave itself, we broke through it, and lo and behold, we didn't find anything. We found, in fact, that what he had called, what his uh, geotechnical engineers called breakages or fissures in the bedrock, turned out to be natural splits in the bedrock and did not really conform to a cave mouth. As a matter of fact, there were a series of vertical rather than horizontal splits, and we demonstrated that this was not, in fact, a real cave mouth, even even though we could see where it was artificially sealed, um, it was nevertheless a signal that um, essentially suggested that these fractures that he was calling a, um, 
a breakage and a cave opening were in fact just natural shear planes within the bedrock itself. And as a result of that, um, we actually met up with the geotechnical engineers that had undertaken that study. And after looking at the scientific data, we sat down, we looked around, and uh, we came to the conclusions that what they were finding essentially was a series of microfractures that showed, in fact, a compelling pattern, but they had nothing to do with uh, any kind of an open cave mouth that was artificially sealed by human activity, or even, as it was claimed at the time, and very nicely claimed, that there was a diversion of uh, a stream flow that eventually sealed up the cave mouth because climate climatic conditions produced a very thick calcium carbonate crust that in many cases did tend to seal cave mouths in this kind of a landscape. To make a very long story short, we were able to uh, demonstrate that um, these cracks and these breakages and anomalous sonar readings in the uh, cave limestone were in fact natural breakages and this resulted in a fairly contentious uh, argument between the gentleman who was the financier and the university and in this case the Israeli Department of Antiquities and uh, as a result of that the project was essentially abandoned. Um, We had scientifically demonstrated that these caves were in fact not um, artificially sealed, but were simply um, sealed in by natural processes to some degree, and that the anomalies were a product of uh, breakages in the bedrock. But there are numerous types of situations like this, and we're running short of time, so I just briefly want to summarize this. Um, Numerous types of situations like this, which certainly have enough scientific merit to some degree to begin an exploration, because undoubtedly um, there are these types of situations where caves are in fact sealed in this part of the world, and uh, there is in all possibility, in all probability, good chance that uh, some kind of archaeological deposits will be preserved in this type of context. It certainly was a good baseline from which to uh, continue our study. We demonstrated in this case that um, it was an over exaggeration of what had actually happened, but I have a number of other examples of where, in fact, Um, the types of settings that are often identified as potentially for archaeological findings do in fact make a fair amount of sense. And uh, I will do a follow-up episode on this particular situation. Again, the nexus of science and religion in the presence of an archaeological backdrop that uh, really provide a tremendous amount of food for thought where you can look at these types of belief systems that many of us have, from the spiritual to the atheistic, and look at some kind of a foundation for which very legitimate types of claims can be staked. So that I think the big message here is that we have to respect each other and to look at our uh, personal perspectives and look at them from the um, point of view of individuals who have a different take on what the Bible means, on what religious mean, religion means, and that archaeology can very often serve 
to resolve many of these issues, not in a very black and white sense, but certainly in a gray sense, such as the case of, of the Noah's Ark situation that I discussed earlier, and to demonstrate in some cases that um, the foundations that uh, we, we very often have and use as our baseline um, can be refuted by science and we will proceed and and uh, feature another episode on this topic in the next few weeks and in the meantime as we said before the past is the gateway to the future understand archaeology and you will have sort of a pathway for um, a visionary uh, perspective on the future Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.